Making now, I think, his fourth appearance on Radio Parallax is Brad Friedman, who brings you Brad Blog on a regular basis, uh, a website we've recommended to you highly and will continue to do so. And we say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Brad. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. Want to put a plug in for you? You hosted for Peter B. Collins a couple weeks back, and that, that goes all over the nation. And then when Christine Kraft was uh, uh, filling in for you, you were on her show. So you've been, you've been getting quite a bit of airtime lately. I will go wherever anybody wants to hear what I have to tell them. You know me. Well, I appreciate that and the fact that uh, you sent a, a very curious um, a blog a couple days back. You were down in Plano, Texas, and you decided to drop in on the Diebold Company. Tell us about that. Yeah, we thought that would be nice. We were actually down there uh, visiting some family in Texas, and it turned out to be about five minutes away from the uh, Diebold headquarters. And it was the night after uh, Deborah Bowen's earth-shattering uh, pronouncement, frankly, uh, decertifying uh, Diebold's uh, voting system and uh, adding uh, new security procedures and so forth. And uh, we happened to stop by. It was about 10.30 at night. And uh, it was an, in an industrial park out there, and there was no cars anywhere except for at the Diebold building, uh, and there was uh, about 25 or 30 cars. It seemed as if they might have been in crisis mode huddling inside. And uh, one of the things that we were able to see, and you can see the pictures at bradblog.com from our, uh, our visit, is uh, the, w the warehouse at Diebold, and you'll see a stack of touchscreen voting machines right by the loading dock ready to be shipped out. And what was interesting and occurred to me when I saw it was, you know, one of the things that the voting machine companies and the elections officials have been saying in response to Deborah Bowen's uh, study is that, oh, it was unrealistic, that, you know, voters don't have that kind of access to the voting machines. And that is true. Generally, they don't. But what we do know, and that they're not telling you, is that the greatest threat to voting systems comes from election insiders, be it election officials, be it uh, poll workers who, who take these machines home with them, for weeks prior to the election to bring them in on election day, or most notably in this case, uh, voting machine company employees. And now that we know that you can get in, hack one of these machines in 60 seconds, it was interesting that these machines sitting right by the loading dock with nobody around, uh, a company employee could have gone in, done a hack, and boom, shipped these machines off to any county USA, flipped an entire election without leaving a trace behind. It is just that easy, and that's what the... Uh, Frankly, these liars who are uh, coming from the voting machine companies and many of their uh, apologists who are elections officials, that's what they don't tell the media when, uh, when they come to them to report on this story. Yeah, I was quite shocked to see, even in the Sacramento Bee, the reporting of Deborah Bowen's actions were, were sort of framed in, in terms of, like, county officials uh, up in arms over Deborah Bowen's actions, instead of putting it in a positive light, which it certainly should be. Well, look, it would be nice if we got even something that resembled Fox's fair and balanced nonsense, which is to say, you know, for all of these stories that you read, the reporting has been horrible. They'll have generally three or four different elections officials, voting machine company folks. Uh, if you're lucky, you might get one comment from an election integrity person such as myself uh, or maybe a voter. And I think that would be nice to hear from more voters how they feel about this, uh, about this situation, because I suspect that most voters think uh, that elections should be transparent and that we should not be using secret software made by private companies who have given us hackable voting systems. 
Uh, but they they almost never talk to the election integrity folks, and uh, almost completely never bother to talk to the uh, to the voters. And what makes it particularly frustrating is they are being the media is being lied to by the elections officials and by the uh, 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 voting machine companies, and the reporters are doing nothing to fact check it. They are just passing it on uh, without question. There was one remarkable piece in, um, it was the San Francisco Chronicle, actually, where the, the reporter, John Wildermuth, passed on some comments from uh, the Napa County Registrar, John Tudor. And uh, I don't know how, how, how well you know what uh, Bowen uh, uh, proclaimed, but one of the things that happened was touchscreen systems can generally only be used now, one per precinct, to marginally uh, meet the Help America Vote disability voters' access standards. Well, so there'll be one touchscreen machine in a polling place if the uh, counties want, and everyone else will have to vote on paper. Well, this fellow, John Tudor from Napa County, the registrar out there, he told the reporter who passed it on dutifully that this means every voter at the precinct will have to vote on a single (laughs) machine, which could cause bottlenecks for hours. I love this story. Yeah, incredibly, Wildermuth at the San Francisco Chronicle passed this on as if it was fact. Didn't bother to do any fact-checking. And, uh, and it's just extraordinary what, they're, uh, what the crap, frankly, that these guys are able to get away with in the media. And, uh, well, we need more folks like you, Doug, uh, bringing people on and telling them the truth, whether it's talking to me or talking to the computer scientists who, uh, who, who, who did this extraordinary landmark study so that the real story can get out to the people because... Uh, Frankly, uh, the guys who have invested millions and their careers in this thing are out there lying about it, and they're being given a platform by the media to do it, and it's appalling. Well, it looks like we're going to make a three-part series in this, Brad. You're part two. We did speak last week to Professor Matthew Bishop at UC Davis and Professor David Wagner at UC Berkeley about what they did uh, in, their, in their review. And hopefully Deborah Bowen will come on next week to, to talk about this. We're talking to her people. I, I hope so, and I'm glad you talked to them, because if you read it in the paper... Those are the people who are referred to frequently as the team of hackers, as if they're some, uh, you know, uh, 15-year-old boys sitting in their parents' basements trying to get into California's voting systems. These are the top computer scientists in the world who, uh, who took a look at these machines. And, uh, you know, it's not a team of hackers. These are computer scientists, and they have confirmed in no uncertain terms that these machines are hackable from the get-go and should never have been used in our democracy. Well, Brad, you're a guy who, uh, who doesn't mince words too much, so I wanted to bring up uh, the subject of Dan Walters' calm. Did you, can't, did you get a chance to see that last week, Dan Walters writing in the B? He's very influential here in, in California's capital. Right. But boy, did he get it wrong on this one. I had read a flurry of them, and I recall his being terrible, but I can't remember why. Let me give you a quote or sure. two. I think you'll just appreciate it. He's referring to Deborah Bowen. Whether heartfelt or opportunistic, her position reflected the black box paranoia that had developed on the fringe left about Diebold's touchscreen machines, with conspiracy theorists alleging that they were used to deliver Ohio's electoral votes to President Bush in 2004. It's somewhat akin to, and about as rational as, those who worry about an invasion of space aliens in flying saucers. You know, that's incredible, because we have heard that for years uh, from a lot of folks who have said uh, folks like me are conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hat-wearing, uh, you know, FBI, uh, you know uh, UFO followers or something. 
but I haven't heard that a lot uh, since uh, Diebold Voting Machine was hacked at uh, Princeton University, uh, since the Florida State University found out that ES&S machines can be hacked with a virus as well, uh, you know, since, certainly since the Deborah Bowen study, since the University of Connecticut found the same thing. I mean, the, the top scientists in the world, you know, are on record finding one vulnerability after another. If that's conspiracy theory, and if this guy uh, thinks we're worried about the invasions from Mars, perhaps we've already been invaded from Mars, and uh, the Martians are writing at our newspapers because apparently they're unable to go out and read scientific studies a mountain of them at that, and I would include Walters in that group. Well, we've covered it on this show, you've covered it in your blog. Uh, you know, the, the issues of what happened in Ohio 2004 are, are very, very disturbing, and certainly certainly um, should have been investigated more than they were. We'll just, I think we'll just leave it at that. Well, no doubt, and remember, by the way, uh, what happened in 2004 happened in no small part because of gaming paper ballots. So it's not all touchscreen voting machines. This is about having transparency all around so that you can go back, at least you can go back to Ohio and actually count those ballots. That is, if they existed, because we just found out uh, last week that 56 out of 88 counties in Ohio destroyed some or all of their paper ballots despite being given a court order, a federal judge court order, to retain those ballots. They destroyed them anyway. So uh, they killed any opportunity for transparency there. But it just shows you, once again, that this is all about transparency. And uh, who knows, maybe uh, Martians are uh, running the, uh, uh, the, the counties in Ohio as well, and that's why they chose to uh, destroy ballots in 56 out of 88 counties when they were told to do otherwise by a federal judge. It's the rule of law, it's transparency, it's democracy. This is the bottom line, and if the people don't stand up for it because the people know what's right here i believe then we're going to continue to get this kind of awful reporting from the mainstream media and we're going to be stuck with another uh, presidential election in 2008 that the people cannot have confidence in we've got to change that because uh, i don't think this democracy can stand a, a third questionable presidential election in a row well sir we certainly agree with you on that but things are not off to a good start I'm look at your blog right now brad noting that uh, they're touting this, uh, this, this straw poll in Ohio as if it means something, but apparently there was Diebold optical scan system failures already. That's right. They had to recount, depending on who you believe, either 1,500 or 4,500 of the ballots by hand when the Diebold voting machines failed. Uh, two of them failed. The good news is there was paper ballots to go back and count, which you don't have if you have a, a touchscreen uh, voting system. But once again, it underscores what uh, pieces of crap Diebold voting machines are and the fact that this is not about right and left. This is about right and wrong because guess what? This was a Republican primary where the Diebold voting systems failed. So uh, for, for Dan Walters, who says this is a, a political or a partisan thing, well, let's just say he's full of it. How's that? Good enough. Well... Brad, you're certainly welcome to come back again. I know we'll have you back. For more information, go to bradblog.com. Brad Friedman, thanks for speaking with us again, and come back soon. Now, always my pleasure, Doug, anytime. We're going to talk a little bit about the Indian subcontinent. Our next guest, Professor Sherrod Malalu. 
Emeritus Professor of Sociology, has taught for 34 years at CSUS. He obtained his Ph.D. at Ohio State University and a master's degree at Brigham Young University. He uh, came to the United States in 1946, having left India when it was still a British colony. He returns five months a year uh, to live in India, has done so since 1993. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Professor Malalu. Thank you. Um, in America, um, we think of, of, of colonialism as something that goes back to the time of George Washington, which it does, and yet you grew up in, a, in, in the British colony of India and, and were part of, I guess, the Indian Army. I guess you were, you, what was that like being in, in, uh, in, in the army of, of a colonial power like Terrible. That? <laughs> Terrible. In fact, uh, in a sense, I suppose, indirectly, that's uh, why I resigned my commission, because I was the only Indian officer in a unit made up of British officers who had privates who were Indians. And so the attitudes of the British officers towards these Indi- ordinary Indians right. was uh, appalling. I couldn't stand it because I had identified with the Indian soldiers. Yeah. Did you feel they were part of a, part of a, a team? It was, not, it was not a team. It was no, pretty no, much no. There was, there no, was, there was no. us and them. Yes, especially because they kept talking about Indian society as well during mm-hmm. the war. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they'd be in contact with villagers, you know, wherever they were stationed, and they'd uh, say all sorts of demeaning things mm-hmm. about Indians. And I would have to listen to them, the officers' mess, and I didn't care to. So I started uh, eating with the subordinate officer in my own tent and so on, and um, of course that didn't sit very well. So it, it wasn't very pleasant. Although many uh, Indians did serve, and they did very well, and have. General Kariyappa, our first uh, commander-in-chief in India, under ind- in independence, was a British officer in the Indian Army. India is the world's second largest nation. It is the world's uh, largest democracy. Had uh, India not been partitioned in 1947 for the math I came up with, it would be the world's largest nation. If you add the populations of Pakistan and Bangladesh, it would be greater than that of China. Uh, it's almost more of a region than it is um, a nation. At least some have said that in the past. It could have gone a different way in 1947. You mean the split? Yeah. We, talk, we should talk about that a bit. Well, there's not much to say except that uh, Mahatma Gandhi, for example, was quite opposed to that. But, of course, the British played their hand here. They were, I don't think they were interested in having a strong, powerful, united India. Right. So they, they play one side they off the other. They play both sides right. to strengthen their own position sure. and get, make the most out of it. And so they appeased Jinnah. And, of course, Nehru was anxious to be prime minister. You should probably explain to our audience who, 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 who Jinnah was. Oh, Jinnah was the founder of Pakistan. That is, the political founder of Pakistan. Head of the Muslim community during the independence struggle towards the end. Actually, he was a member of Congress, but uh, he didn't think he could be number one in Congress. So right. he turned to another constituency, the Muslims. He said, we must, we must split India into, into two nations. He insisted. And, of course, he was not a good Muslim anyway. He was a very stylish, westernized uh, Muslim who, who had, didn't adopt the Muslim canons of code, uh, you know, drinking and smoking, right. and, and <laughs> he married a Parsi, I think. <laughs> I just did. He drank, he smoked, he, he couldn't speak uh, uh, Urdu no, no. and couldn't read Arabic. That's right. So he couldn't read the Quran, and yet he was, he was the father the of founder modern of Pakistan. founder of the pure Islamic state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was certainly a very polished politician. 
At that time, Nehru was anxious to be prime minister. So he mm -hmm. said, well, better get it over with and I'll get my chance to be a prime minister because he was getting told too. So Nehru, Nehru saw the chance to lead India, Jinnah saw the chance to lead Pakistan, and poor Mohandas Gandhi was trying to keep everything together. Yes, yes, and of course in the end he got his. I, I was reading that when India was partitioned, at midnight, uh, August 14th, 1947, um, actually I should read the quote from, from Nehru if I can find it, it was very eloquent. Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India, on August 14th, at the stroke of the midnight hour, while the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new, when an age ends, and when the soul of a nation long suppressed finds utterance. And at midnight that night, British India became Pakistan and, and the modern state of India. That's right. right. She was a brilliant man, literary figure, considered one of the great writers in English. I don't know if you've read any of his works. I am, but, I'm uh, sorry to say I yes. have not. And the, the most well-known one is The Discovery of India, the way he writes from the Indian standpoint, mm -hmm. the history of India from the very beginning and all the influence. And, of course, he idealizes India, but he writes beautifully. And I certainly recommend the book uh, as general reading. Well, we think today of two nations at odds with one another, with a, with a, with a frontier, uh, what was originally Pakistan, divided into to West and East Pakistan. East Pakistan subsequently became Bangladesh in, I guess, 1970. Yeah, in fact, Jinnah actually wanted a corridor connecting the two sections right, right there, through the Ganges Valley. Right. right. <laughs> the most fertile part of India. Of course, he didn't get it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But on this the same day, which which of course, uh, which you know, Jinnah was over in I guess uh, probably Karachi, and I don't know what, but the, I guess it was the capital then, and and in in New Delhi, uh, Nehru was now reigning supreme. Gandhi was uh, feeling defeated and was actually I guess in in Bangladesh or in the Ganges Delta, uh, trying to to hang out with Muslims to put down some of the the violence that had flared between the Hindus and Muslims as this partition had taken place. He was doing what he had uh, spent most of his life doing, fostering peace and goodwill. He was a take of things. Uh, he risked his life in that, in that setting, you know, where all this bloodshed was going on. Sure. You may have read some of it uh, in the papers and so on. Very famous movie with, uh, which Oscar award-winning movie of about 15, 20 years ago, Gandhi. Oh, yes, yes. Except that only showed a political side of Mahatma Gandhi. That wasn't the most important aspect of Mahatma Gandhi, although he was instrumental in achieving independence. But the most important part, which is now hidden in India, because nobody talks about it, is his economic program. It also expresses his attitude toward Western uh, culture. He said, the hope for the world is a spinning wheel. And what he meant was village self-sufficiency. Yeah. Cultivate small businesses throughout India. Right. And now we're turning towards that as a result of the uh, looking at all the mistakes Nehru made, mm -hmm. this notion of industrialization. Right and large-scale, massive hydroelectric projects and sure. so on. In fact, Nehru himself, towards the uh, end of his career, said um, these industrial projects, these hydroelectric power projects, even if they are not useful for India as they were constructed, they have a symbolic value. So India can look at them and say, oh, we're making progress. Right. So even he recognized or started to recognize that that wasn't the answer. But uh, Mahatma Gandhi, that's, uh, in fact, uh, his followers now living in India are trying to restore 
and resurrect that. I, di- I didn't realize you still had a following. Yes, but they're not heard of. Right. Too much. You're not, not very popular. Occasionally you hear about them. There are people like Baba Amte, for example, in, in, in uh, Maharashtra, who are working on the village level, and there are lots of NGOs, which are non-governmental organizations, all over India, doing all sorts of work, but on a small scale, because they're not getting the kind of funding you get for these globalization it's The opposite projects. of globalization. Yes, the Decentralization. Yes. Yeah. And of course, there's no, uh, no, there's no money in it for the politicians. And so that's the dilemma that India faces. And of course, the pressure to uh, globalize comes from the West. Yeah. Because the West, in a sense, is saying to countries like India, if you want to, if you want to function on the world's level with us, then you've got to be like us. That's the only kind of language you'll understand, the language of power. That's why China has such a powerful role, even though India is comparable in many ways. And that's what the rest of the world is trying to fight right now. But the only level on which it can be really fought is on the level of globalization, because globalization is not going to work in India and in large countries. There are too many people there. You've got to work with the masses on their level, make life good for them. And that's where the solution lies. And so maybe there's hope there. Michael Hart, in his book, The 100 Most Influential Persons in History, did not include Mohandas Gandhi among his top 100. He didn't want to include him because he thought that forces were such that India was headed for an end to colonialism anyway, and he wasn't sure in his own mind that it was Gandhi that made all the difference. Would you agree with that? Well, I wouldn't say he made all the difference, because I think Western culture had some influence there too, because the leaders of independence were trained in the West, and they were influenced by Western ideas as to what to do in a country as far as politics is concerned, and the political structure of life, the idea of democracy. These were westernized Indians who were leaders of the national movement. Yeah. But they couldn't connect with the Indian population because there was a big gap sure. between their ideas, which applied in the West, not to India. They couldn't connect with the Indian masses. Along came Mahatma Gandhi, who was a real man of the masses. Yeah. And he made, uh, allowed the Indian masses to be connected to the political movement. And it's in that sense that he became the leader of Indian independence. Now, it may have happened anyway in time, but the point is he had a tremendous influence on people, yeah. a tremendously calming. Look at the chaos you find in other societies, sure. except those that are totalitarian. Even there you have the chaos, of course, which is in. China's for history, for example, is bloody. Yeah. In fact, the kind of tragedies, human tragedies, mass tragedies that went on in China, I mean, there's no comparison to what the jihadis do, do are doing, the Muslim jihadis are doing in the world today. And yet, of course, this is what the uh, Western world is preoccupied with rather than what happened in China. China is powerful. Nobody wants to get <laughs> China upset. And so the same thing with Mahatma Gandhi, you see. It's hard to answer the question in a simple way, whether you agree with him or not. I think he was a great influence, not only on, on India and on independence, but on the rest of the world. Martin Luther King, for example, yeah, I don't think he can be dismissed. Sure. And personally, I think, of course, he was probably the greatest figure of the uh, century of his century. The direction in which we need to go yeah. to create a better world is the one I think that he's proposing. And the kind of values that uh, talk about ordinary life and how you get along with your fellow human beings and how you treat your enemies. Mahatma Gandhi argued that you can't separate means and ends. 
the means dictate the ends. And as somebody else said, if you want to, if you bring the devil in on your side to help you, then he's going to have a say at the end. So it's similar to the to the notion that the means are related to the ends. Now, as a young man, I understand you actually had a chance to meet Gandhi. I wouldn't say meet, but there were, I did see him on two occasions. Okay. Once was at, at a political rally in uh, Chopati Beach in Bombay, uh, where many such gatherings are held, even including religious festivals and so on. It was a huge mass of people. They, they occupied the entire beach. Some people were carrying him on a, on a chair high up there where he could be seen. He was a small figure. But it's amazing the influence he had on that whole crowd. And uh, all they could say was, you know, the, the, the shouts in praise of Mahatma Gandhi. But the other was a more personal type of a contact. Uh, probably in the 30s, late 30s, one of the practices of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, wherever he went in India, whenever he traveled, and also at home, of course, where he used to live, was to hold prayer meetings in the evening. Mm -hmm. And so the Christian community in, um, in Bombay decided to uh, ask him if we could attend one of his prayer meetings mm -hmm. and have this prayer ceremony with him. And so um, this uh, gathering took place at the beach in Juhu, uh, just outside Bombay. There was a gathering of Christians uh, from uh, the Bombay area. Mm -hmm. They all met to uh, meet Mahatma Gandhi, and they sang Christian hymns. His favorite hymn was A Lead Kindly Light, and so they sang that. Uh -huh. And it was one of the few uh, religious occasions at that time with, that brought together different religious groups for a service. Protestants and Catholics, mm -hmm. first time they were really brought together in a religious <laughs> way for a, to have a common ceremony. Yeah. And again, with a man who was not a Christian. Right. Technically. You couldn't hear a sound as he sat there because he had a very quiet voice and he spoke gently and so on. And then after the uh, meeting, we all filed past him. And so all of us in single file walked by and we were right sort of face to face with him and we greeted mm -hmm. him and mm -hmm. went on. So he had a chance to, chance to see him. But it's amazing, you know... Uh, if you were to put him in the Western world somewhere, people wouldn't even look at him. Little, They'd probably trample him. <laughs> five foot tall, little, little man with wearing yes. robes. Uh. Well, he was a little taller than that, but uh, <laughs> physically he doesn't look uh, yeah. charismatic. Right. And yet he was. Yes. In, uh, in the real sense, not in the sense of a movie star, charisma yeah. and so on. You know, There was something about him. I, I find that quite remarkable. He was famous for being able to go into to Muslim areas, and yet the Muslims... the also revered him. It wasn't the Hindu thing. The Muslims revered him as a truly holy man. Yes, yes. Here, here, here Christians of, of all sides put aside their differences in recognition of, of this character. Yes, but they knew him. Yeah. See, they knew him, that's why. That's what gave him his charisma. They knew his life. They knew what he stood for. And that immediately quieted everybody because he was genuine, except, of course, the fanatic who eventually shot him. Dr. Sherrod Malala, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us on the show. Thank you. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.